This podcast is sponsored by Australian Christian College, a network of schools committed to student wellbeing, character development and academic improvement. Welcome to the Inspiration Project, where well-known Christians share their stories to inspire young people in their faith and life. Here's your host, Brendan Corr. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Inspiration Project podcast. I hope that you're enjoying the conversations that we've been able to bring to you and uh, hearing some of the things that our guests have learned. I'm delighted to welcome to the project today, Dr. Michael Spence. Dr. Michael Spence uh, commenced his tertiary studies with the Bachelor of Arts with first class honours in English, Italian and law. He progressed uh, to take some studies at other institutions and became a specialist in the, in the field of intellectual, intellectual property theory, um, headed up Oxford's law faculty and social science division before taking uh, his role uh, following his PhD um, to the Vice-Chancellorship of the University of Sydney since 2008. Uh, in that role, Dr Spence has uh, allowed Sydney University to rise to be the, the number one ranked university in Australia and the fourth ranked university in the world in terms of graduate employability and a regular position in the top 50 universities in the world. Dr. Spence, thank you so much for giving us your time today. May I welcome you to our Inspiration Project? Thank you. It's a pleasure to have the chance to talk. I must say, as we run through that sort of an account, it's very uh, appropriate for you to join this particular conversation. It's rather inspiring to uh, hear of how you've been able to continue to pursue so much of success in a world that is that is very um, competitive, the world of, of academia. Um, what was it that led you to invest the obvious time and effort that would have been required for you to to reach the the heights of success in that field that that you have? So I think um, for me at least, life happens and happens in a um, slightly less structured and intentional way than that. Various opportunities. Um, as they arise, you um, pray over them and think through them and um, try and see where God might be leading you. Mm. Um, test various sorts of doors and um, uh, uh, see which ones um, uh, look like the right way to go. Mm. So, um, uh, 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 and I think that's really important to remember because quite often, you know, I do a lot of work with students and there are some students who know when they're five that they want to be a doctor or an engineer or a management consultant or whatever it might be and are very directed towards a particular um, professional or life goal. Mm. But for most students, when they enter university, they don't have much idea of what they want to do at all. Mm. And um, they, and sometimes that's a source of great anxiety um, and a sense that they ought to be you know, much more... Uh, directed um and i think it's really important just to try and do well the thing to which you are called at the moment yes um, and to uh let tomorrow's troubles look after themselves and things sort of unfold mm. and i suppose that's the way that i would say that my career has developed so is is that a, a 
natural tendency that you have for to be to be a person in the moment, and it's it's about just the next step, or are you somebody that sets long term goals and has has uh, definite ambitions? Um. So I really, I really think there's um, uh, uh, wisdom when Jesus says each day, is pro- um, uh, you know, every day has mm. uh, uh, worries enough is uh, for its uh, own. Sufficient evil for the day thereunto, or whatever mm-hmm. it is, um, uh, and that living in the moment makes a lot of sense. Um, uh, you know, obviously, um, there has to be a certain amount of planning and a certain amount of thinking of the future, and a certain amount. But I think. Um, we can spend way too much living either in the past mm. or living in the future and miss out on what's happening now in the present. Mm, that's good. I'll come back to that in our conversation in the future. Can I ask you, Dr. Spence, when did you realise that you you were good at learning and that you loved it enough for it to become the, the, the basis of a career? Well, again, I think it was something that just sort of unfolded. So, um, you know, from the age of 15, I um, uh, had lots of part-time jobs. And for the last couple of years at university or the last of the year and a half, I um, uh, worked uh, more or less full-time in a law firm as a um, clerk. And I got to see how um, professional lawyers worked. Um, and then I did some work for a government lobbyist. And I got to see how government lawyers um, worked in one way or another, and then um, uh, you know the British government was prepared to perform me go and do a um, PhD. That seemed like a good idea. Mm. Um, so uh, again, I think what I did was try out various sorts of things, and thought actually this is the thing that really fits. This is the thing that excites me, mm. um, and uh, and 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 so life unfolded itself. Mm. And I think that. Uh, I do think for me it's been very much a matter of responding to the opportunities that have arisen as they have arisen. Mm. Uh, And, uh, you know, trusting that God's got the future sort of sorted one way or another. Mm. Yeah, that's that's wonderful. So you talked about this stepping into the things that excite you, that interest you. Was school exciting for you? If you take you back to that 15-year-old lad and you – in year nine, yeah, so year I, ten. Uh, yeah, so I, I, um, I enjoyed school very much. You know, it's complex and um, especially complex since a time when there's a lot going on in your life and all the rest of it. But yeah, I enjoyed school very much. Any particular memories um, of that I, time, or any teachers that really set you on a course of of uh, enjoying academics? Yeah, so um, my fifth class teacher, my English teacher in high school. There's, um, you know, there are various people who, um. Uh, uh, inspire you to learn, um, and I think that's a real talent. That um, uh, you know, a teacher who doesn't just um, give you information, but actually helps you explore ideas. Um, that's a real gift that some people have. And uh, and yes, I was fortunate enough to have teachers like that. Yeah, that's that's a, that's great. Hopefully, some of our listeners to do also uh, get encouraged along that way. So you moved into the law as a particular area of interest, uh, both. Uh, at your undergraduate oh, level? I think, that, I think that's putting it far too highly. So <laughs> uh, I wanted to do English at university, um, but like many people, um, young people in New South Wales, um, I had all these ATAR points and they kind mm. of feel like frequent flyer points and you've sort of got to spend Cash them in somewhere. 
So it cashed them in somewhere. So um, arts law sounded like a posture thing to say that you were doing at parties than, um, uh, than just arts, although um, uh, I'm not sure that's a good reason for making a decision. So um, I sort of tumbled into arts law. And then it was at a time the government were paying, was paying fees in those Halston days. So I did an honours year in English and then an honours year in Italian and then um, finished off the law degree. So I, I wouldn't say that I had a um, particular passion to be a lawyer. Um, I wanted to study. I knew that I liked texts um, and uh, arts law seemed like a good thing to do and something that kept my options open. Yeah, to to balance it out, you focused on English, uh, English literature. Was was that the focus of your undergraduate? Uh, That's right. Mm -hmm. And -hmm. you added uh, Italian to that in your undergraduate studies? Yeah, I did Italian because my um, girlfriend at the time was doing it and that seemed good. Very good reason. I was also interested in um, uh, uh, the the Renaissance in English literature and so Italian seemed like a good complement for that interest, um, you know, given the important influence that Italian literature had during that period. So um, uh, uh, I took it up and she dropped it at the (laughs) <laughs> End of the second year, and I did four years of it. So. Yeah, so it, it, it seems as though that language must have taken a bit of a place in your in your heart or your your passions. You've added a few languages since then: French, Chinese, so, Korean. Um, yeah, so uh, I was at Oxford, and um, we were setting up a university-wide centre for Chinese studies, and it seemed to me to be important to learn a bit of Chinese. So I did that, and. <laughs> really enjoyed that and it's been useful for my work and uh, a great sort of, uh, uh, it gives you a remarkable insight into that sort of fascinating culture. Mm. And um, then my wife is Korean and we're raising our children bilingually. So um, I mean languages in Korean at the um, university, which means that my Korean is rather bizarre because um, it's either household Korean, you know, do you need a nappy change and what's for dinner and that kind of stuff. Or um, uh, uh, the Korean university was Korean for academic purposes, so it's either very highfalutin or um, uh, very everyday. And, unless you're asking where, where could the nappy get changed or something like that yeah. in the <laughs> restaurant. Uh, well, the nappy change room. That's right. Let me ask you, with, as a little bit of a detour, before we circle back to some of those other issues, having studied languages, I think that's five I can count quickly. Um, what, what, what do you think that... Uh, the, the language provides as a window into different ways of looking at the world or different approaches to life? Yeah, so I think language is a key to culture. I think people embed their cultural assumptions in their languages um, and it really helps to understand a culture to know something about the language. So um, Korean, for example, has five levels of honorific. So if I say... Um, my father gave my grandfather a house. It's father with a suffix to show he's either the topic or the subject of the sentence. Um, and is the recipient of a gift, but not the normal one, one that shows that he's my social superior. House, but not the normal word for house, one that shows that the person who currently owns it, my father, is my social superior with a suffix to show that it's the object of giving. Give, but not the normal word for give one that shows that my father, who is the giver, is the social inferior of my um, grandfather, the um, recipient, and then one of five different endings depending upon my social relationship with you, the speaker. 
And wow. we just don't do hierarchy like that in English. I mean, we signal hierarchy in different ways. Um, and that has particular, creates particular um, sort of benefits and burdens for um, Korean culture, that awareness, a constant awareness of hierarchy um, that have to be navigated. And I think it, um, it helps to have a window into the culture to understand something of the language. Yeah, that's very, very useful example of, of uh, exactly how language does reflect the values of the society that it's that well, it's both, embedded both in. And of course, reinforces as well. Yeah, very, very true, very true. Dr. Spence, you've mentioned a couple of times in our conversation already the importance of, of uh, God in your life and of being prayerful and discerning as, as he has led you through different stages. Can you talk to us a little bit about how you came to be a person of faith? Sure. So I grew up in a Christian home and I had a kind of experience of coming to uh, uh, understand what Christian faith meant when I was about five or six that I remember very clearly. But I suppose for for me, there have been various points in my life when I've had to say, well, sort of is this a load of holy baloli? Our uh, Christian faith seems like foolishness to some people and a stumbling block to other people. Um, and there's a lot of, it's not immediately intuitive um, at, in our culture to believe that God has broken into human history in the kind of way that um, Christians believe that he has. And so there there have been various points at which I've thought, well, you know, is this really for me? Mm. And um, I suppose uh, having a Christian faith is about partly continuing to make the decision that it is. Mm. So th that's an interesting point because you you uh, expressed earlier an interest in the Renaissance period and have pursued a, a career in university academics, which is focused on knowledge. Many people would understand that those things were counter to one another, that in a life of faith and a life of knowledge, and particularly the fruits of the Renaissance were anti-religious or anti-faith uh, as such. How do you make, you said you make the decision to continue to believe. What, what does that mean when you're making a decision about faith? So I suppose partly it's about being true to your experience of life, true to um, what makes sense of the world for you. Mm -hmm. So you know, there's, a, there's a part where C.S. Lewis says talks about um, the missing theme of a of a symphony or the missing chapter of a book. Mm. He says, if, if something comes along and says, somebody comes along and says, you know, this is the theme that makes sense, then what you have to do is read it as a part of the whole or hear it as a part of the whole and, mm. and, and think whatever problems there may be with it per se, does it make sense of the whole? Mm. And to me, um, there are several core Christian intuitions that just make sense of the world. Um, so, uh, you know, um, when you look at the world, for example, it's a, it's a, it's a marvellous and a terrible place mm. uh, and you've got to know what to do with the fact that it is a terrible place um, and that you know, there's um, suffering and disease and death. And I suppose uh, there are a couple of ways of handling that. You can either say, 
well um, with the materialists, well, look, it's just the way things are. The way things are is the way things are. Mm. Um, we have no rational reason, beauty over ugliness or mm. um, uh, uh, suffering over joy. Mm. Or you can say with um, some of the great Eastern philosophies, um, there's a kind of complementarity between these things. Or you can do the kind of Judeo-Christian thing of saying, actually, the the good and the true and the beautiful are somehow right. They're somehow more authentic. Um, they're somehow more real um, than uh, the um, false and the and the ugly and the untrue. And that and that therefore the world is a good place somehow spoiled um, rather than. Um, a place that merely is or a place where the pattern mm. is um, a, a pattern of complementarity. Um, lose a friend or when I see great suffering or whatever, um, that makes sense to me. I think, mm. you know, this this is wrong. I want to be able to say this is wrong. Yes. And um, the uh, the Christian account of the word allows me to do that yes. in a way that um, no other does. And I suppose um, similarly uh, the Christian notion that if, that if um, uh, uh, that it, that, it, that somehow, if that wrongness of the world is going to be dealt with, it needs to be dealt with by the person responsible for the whole show. Mm-hmm. Um, that that also makes sense to me, yeah. um, not least because uh, so many of our attempts to put things right, good though many of them are, sort of end up going wrong in one way or another. So there's just several points at which I think the Christian account of the world is is more intellectually plausible. Yes, um, that it makes more sense of my experience of the world and um, of the way that I see things, and and that that that's true even though it itself is uh, not easy to understand in some ways. Mm-hmm. But but. Uh, that, that then becomes a different exercise, the exercise of trying to understand the Christian account of the world um, rather than an, a question as to whether or not the Christian account of the world is is ultimately the one you plump with. Your reflections to hear those at the moment that it, it's there is as much intellectual integrity that you, you find in Christian faith as much as a counterpoint to intellectualism um, in, in your carrying your faith into into your space, do you, universities are about the pursuit of knowledge, understanding. Do you uh-huh. do you hold the view, or do you, in your your understanding of uh, the intellectual integrity of of a, a Christian faith, the the nature of knowledge? Is there, in your thinking, knowledge that is discovered, or is there knowledge that we craft? as humans, as part of our human endeavour? I suppose I do think ultimately that there is partly it's about um, the nature of the nature of things mm. um, being revealed as much as um, uh, as much as being discovered. Mm. But that's a whole complex other conversation that mm. um, yeah, probably is more than I can do justice to in a couple of sentences. Yeah, fair enough. The, the notion of regularly making, reaffirming that decision of your faith, uh, is, has that been something that being involved in a university where there is the contention of ideas, has that contributed to you asking questions regularly of 
the validity of the, the beliefs that you hold? I mean, on the contrary, university tends to be a um, thinking environment and therefore, I mean, um, sociologists say, and I think it's true, that most of us um, believe things because of what they call plausibility structures, so fundamental untested assumptions about the nature of reality um, against which we test things. Mm. Um, and uh, and I think the plausibility of our structures, uh, the plausibility structures of our um, culture just are not sympathetic to Christian faith. Mm. But I think that has a lot more to do with um, the assumptions underpinning your average sitcom mm. than as with the more reflective environment of the university. Now, I won't say the university is always a, um, an environment in which uh, articulating a Christian faith is easy. I haven't found it a more difficult environment than other environments outside the university. Mm. Yeah, that, that, that's great to, great to hear, especially for some of our you know, um, listeners who might be aspiring to head to university, ha- having invested your your life in university and carried faith and the assumptions that that brings to the pursuit of of uh, knowledge and in what do you think the place of of higher learning institutions of higher learning are or should be in in our society? Yeah, it's a good question. I mean, I think the um, Institutions of higher learning should partly be about um, giving you uh, a set of epistemic um, epistemic tools and also a set of epistemic virtues. And I think we probably do better at the, at the former than at the latter. So um, I think there should be places that teach you to um, uh, formulate questions, to gather evidence, to ask questions to formulate hypotheses, listen to the opinions of others and all the rest of it. But I think they also should be places that teach you a certain amount of um, epistemic humility, um, you know, willingness to admit that you might be wrong and openness to listening to the opinion of others a, mm. um, a, 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 and a, a capacity to choose language commensurate with the goal of increasing understanding a, um, a, and a, and I suppose that I think they also should be places that give you space to ask the bigger questions, mm. and in particular to form a um, to form a vision of life mm. um, on which you want to build your future. Mm. Um, I think at that um, there's a really sort of crucial period when people have um, have left school and are. Uh, um, just beginning to think about um, what they want to do and, and what they want to do matches or doesn't match the expectations of those around them. Mm. I think in that context, it's really important to have a, a sense of what you think life should be. And, and at, at their best, um, universities should give you uh, the time and perhaps more than the time mm. um, to through some of those questions. Mm. Interesting, again, you're talking about the, the role of university to help you f- to ask questions and maybe have enough experience to ask the right sort of questions. For for many people, the whole notion of um, being a person of faith is not asking questions but having the answers. Do you, 
do you see a, a a tension between what might be a an an apologetic view of faith versus the task of pushing the boundaries of knowledge and understanding? So um, I think if the Christian account of reality is right, um, we will spend eternity exploring the infinite mind of God. Mm. I don't, uh, and um, I think if your faith becomes a kind of potted set of answers to every question, mm. um, then it's likely to be a very um, brittle mm. thing. Mm. Um, I, I think that there is something about um, the notion of faith-seeking understanding that you that that um, you hold a certain course. A, a certain set of core things about um, uh, uh, God and the nature of reality and human beings are in relation to him and particularly Jesus was. Mm. And then <laughs> you spend the rest of your life um, trying to work out what that means in practice mm. for your life and for um, uh, a whole set of issues that you confront. Mm. Um, and so I don't think asking questions is incompatible with faith mm, i think our questions is a um uh conditioned precedent to having real faith yeah that's good yeah yeah and as you as you say even eternity exploring the infinite mind of god is part of our experience now that there is always something more of god for us to understand engage in perceive mm. through his yeah. and presence with us I think that's um, really right. I mean, I, I suppose I would um, I'd point to two things. Um, uh, uh, the first is that if God um, wanted us to have a neat set of answers, then um, the whole exercise of the um, compilation of the Bible was a really dumb way of going about mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. because um, uh, here is this um, rich and fascinating and varied and complex sets of material of different kinds mm -hmm. um, and um, uh, uh, lessons and um, uh, historical accounts and prophecy and um, poetry and and I think similarly um, when Jesus says uh, you know I am the way the truth mm. and the life he's claiming um, yes of course the truth is propositional mm. but the truth is also ultimately personal mm. um, that that he is the truth and that a part of the um, <laughs> intellectual project upon which we are all inevitably embarked um, and that, and more than the intellectual project, the project of life commitment upon which we're embarked mm. is to get to know him better mm. um, rather than um, simply uh, learning off a whole lot of pieces of information uh, in a way that uh, uh, in a way that I think you're you're alluding to. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. Um, Dr. Spence, you've obviously spent time, um, moving through areas of responsibility in your academic career from um, 
undergraduate student to postgraduate student into the faculty teaching, uh, teaching others to, to understand the disciplines that you have become expert in, you're now at the, the top end, uh, the Vice-Chancellor of the most successful university that, that Australia owns. Are you still oh, a teacher? It's bad. Um, uh, so, yeah, I mean, without being too naff, I think you're always kind of a teacher and a student, aren't you? Um, uh, uh, you're always in one way or another, whatever your vocation, involved in that process both of seeking and of disseminating understanding. So the, the role of a vice-chancellor of a university is very complex. It um, in, involves a uh, lot of... Uh, partly CEO of a $2.8 billion turnover business, partly um, chief worker in a workers' collective because universities have that kind of feel, part mayor of a small town, part headmaster of big school. It's a very... It's a complex role, but it yeah. mostly... Uh, I don't actually teach. Um, it's... Uh, I spend uh, my time running the organisation. Yeah. So is it is it more of a CEO sort of role? Uh, um, so yeah, I suppose a CEO is probably the. Um, it's a um, uh, uh, you know is a is a school principal a CEO or sort of and sort of not. Mm. Um. So in the same kind of way, it sort of is and it sort of isn't. You mentioned that you whatever particular functions you might be performing everybody is somewhat of a teacher and somewhat of a, a student. How is it that, that you are, what are the things that you are still learning? So, you know, I'm learning a whole lot of stuff all the time about how people work, about how organisations work, about um, how to make organisations work better, all sorts mm. of things. Mm. Um, but I think the core thing that I want to learn is that um, uh, the Christian story is it, it, it's ultimately a comedy, you know. I mean, it ultimately um, ends with the notion that um, the world is going somewhere and that the going somewhere is good mm. and that um, the goodness of that of the place to which it is going is guaranteed by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. Mm. And I don't think that we... That we uh, uh, I don't think we always believe that's true. So um, you know, the most the most common command in the Bible is not to be afraid. Mm. And um, you know, don't be afraid. Angels say it and prophets say it and God says and Jesus says, everybody says yes. don't be afraid. And I think that's um uh, fear is kind of the air we breathe. Yes. Um, uh, uh, you know, fear of all sorts and ultimately the fear of death. Yes. And I Figure that because we don't fundamentally believe that life is a comedy. So what I want to do is to learn more in my bones mm. what it means for that to be true mm. uh, and what it means to live that out mm. um, in the way that I do relationships, um, in the way that I do um, my work, in the way that I think. Yeah, that, that's a, a beautiful aspiration for you to hold and, and um, amen to us all learning those lessons. That's terrific. Uh, Dr. Spence, we, we, without opening up another uh, line of, of uh, inquiry, I was interested to read in your biography the expertise you hold in the area of intellectual property mm -hmm. and uh, the law around those sorts of things. And 
I wonder whether the, you, in the context of that, you have any reflections about how, how is it that people can own ideas or, or should people own ideas? Is that a, a, a thing for, for it to be wrestled with, to be talked about? Yeah, so that so I mostly do intellectual property theory. Um, so and um, the intellectual property systems sort of work on this basis. You know, if I um, if I wear your shirt, you can't wear it. Um, so we need rules deciding who can wear particular shirts, or um, you know, who can live in particular houses, or um, drive particular cars. Um, and broadly speaking, yeah, that's the 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 the, the, the law of property intangibles. Um, the, um, uh, but if I sing your song or use your invention, um, uh, you can still do it. Mm. And so it's not immediately obvious that anybody should ever be able to stop anybody from singing anybody's song or mm. using anybody's invention. Um, and if you think that they should be able to, mm. uh, you tell one of two stories. You either tell a story about, um, the economics of the production of intangibles. So if we didn't give you a particular period of the exclusive use of your invention or your song or whatever it might be, no incentive for you to invest in the um, time and energy that it takes to create it. Mm. Or we tell a story about the um, uh, relationship between a creator and the things that they create. Mm. And neither of those stories is wholly coherent. Um, neither of is um, works all the time. Um, both of them shape the law in various ways that are um, distorting and often conflicting. And so part of what I do in my work is to try and unpick ways in which those different uh, uh, economic and ethical justifications for the law have both shaped and misshaped the law in ways that we might think about. Do you still get a chance to engage in that that type of thinking and that type of argument? In, in your role or as really. oh, every, now and then, um, every now and then I do something. So I, um, you know, wrote a piece of, uh, last year or the year, be the year before last for the, um, uh, uh, for, uh, um, on academic ownership of intellectual property, but, um, uh, I don't get much chance to do it. Yeah. The, the, the notion of being able to be or stay true to the things that excite you and, and, uh, your central passions, is that a, a, a tension in, stepping into more and more responsibility and obligations rather than interests? Uh, not really because I actually really enjoy um, academic administration. I enjoy thinking about what makes a small political community work, mm. um, how I work better um, uh, and um, uh, uh, helping an organisation to run. So, um, you know, I, I enjoy that very much. Mm. Dr Spence, we've reached the the time for our uh, allocated conversation. I really want to thank you. We, I, I think there is the tendency uh, across the broad section of, of society not to appreciate necessarily the contribution that institutions of higher learning contribute broadly to the, the culture that we enjoy and even the economy that we are able to enjoy. And as one of the leaders of a significant part of that sector, can we thank you for the work that that part of our, our uh, culture provides for us and the, the work that you do that people don't understand or don't see that assist us so much? Thank you. I appreciate that. I appreciate that very much. 